When I've been asked over the years to give my own testimony of how God called me to himself, I used to begin with the day that I realized that Jesus Christ was real, that I was a sinner, and he had come to pay the penalty for my sins. I believed it. I believed it in faith. But it wasn't until many, many years later that I began to realize that my testimony began long before I knew God. I began to realize that everything in my brief little eight years of life had led up to that particular moment. God actually had a plan in place for my life from the very beginning. This is true for each one of us, including Abraham. The call of Abraham truly began in Genesis 3.15, when God told Eve that he had a plan and that through her seed, a Messiah or a Savior would come. Genesis carefully, carefully lays out this lineage of the seed all the way from Adam and Eve through Seth in chapter 4, and then down to Noah in chapter 5. And then we learn that Noah's sons repopulate the whole earth. And in chapter 11, we find out which son, Noah's son Shem, is going to bring the seed straight down to Abram. The importance of the seed promised to Abram or excuse me, promised to Adam and Eve, is crucially important in God's call to Abram. The seed is God's weapon to defeat the sin that had tried to destroy his creation. It was promised in Genesis 3. It was emphasized in Genesis 9 when God gave his first covenant to Noah, and now it's going to be initiated by God's covenant to Abraham. But first, God is going to direct Abram to an unknown land. So open your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis chapter 12. Okay, we start off in Genesis 12 with God's call. And what do we know about the call of God? Well, the first thing we see in this verse is it is divine. It says, now the Lord... The Lord said to Abram, you know, this is such a simple statement, but if we don't stop here and kind of take it apart, we might miss how truly profound this is. So what has been going on up until now? Until Genesis 3, God talked with Adam and Eve freely and continually. Their relationship was good. In fact, it was very good. And then Through the deception of Eve and the rebellion of Adam, the rest of humanity was propelled into this state of unrighteousness, and that sweet fellowship was gone. A righteous God will not mingle with unrighteousness, and their sin had caused a separation between God and themselves. So where did this unrighteousness end up? Well, in Genesis Genesis 6, it tells us it ended up in judgment. It says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Well, we know that that resulted in the flood. And this has been proven again and again throughout human history. Unrepentant sin only has one destination, more sin which God has told us leads to death. But God, but God, I love those words. He invaded this depraved humanity and he spoke to Noah at the time, the first time. Why? Well, Genesis 6, 8 tells us why. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's the grace of our divine Lord that reached out to Noah and reached out to Abram. It was the grace of God that reached out to my little eight-year-old heart. And it's the grace of the divine Lord that reaches out to you. The Lord. This is the word used to translate the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. 
It's a personal name for God. God who is omnipotent and omniscient and sovereign and merciful, awesome, righteous, full of grace. He personally, personally reached out to man. God made man in his own image so that man could have relationship with him. And he continues to reach down into the depraved hearts of men and women by his grace to have a personal relationship with them. This is amazing. This is so profound. And we're only on verse 1. The Lord is also the name given to Christ in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is about as personal as it gets, right? 1 Timothy 3.16 calls this a great mystery, that God was manifested in the flesh, justified by the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. This, ladies, is the gracious Lord who personally invaded the life of Abram, and he spoke with him. Well, there's another truth that we find in God's call, that it is completely unmerited. Abram was a pagan living in a pagan land. He must have heard perhaps about the God of his forefathers since he was a descendant of Noah's son, Shem. But remember, humans had been exiled by God at Babel, and Abram's family had ended up in Ur of the Chaldeans. I never know if it's Chaldeans or Chaldeans, so just forgive me if I say it wrong. The dispersion of people in the Tower of Babel, it may have slowed the spread of skin, spread of sin, not skin, sin, but people had not repented. They had not returned to God. But God proclaims in Acts 14, 17, that he allowed nations to walk in their own ways, but he will never leave himself without a witness. Abram didn't deserve it, but God picked him to be a witness. God was putting his plan of redemption into place. Nehemiah 9, 7 says, You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name of Abraham. God's call of Abram marks an important turning point in the book of Genesis. Abram played a central role in God's redemptive plan. God had been speaking to humanity through events, but now he's going to institute his plan to restore humanity to right relationship with himself using one man, one nation, and one people, which is going to point to one seed. God's call in the life of any person marks an important turning point. But the call of God is a very serious one. And we see immediately that God's call separates. The Lord tells Abram to leave everything, country, family, home, and to go where? To a land that God would show him. Not many of us are called by God to physically leave our country, our family, and our homes. But we have the amazing opportunity every week here at EWG, just as we heard from the Dicks, to get to know our missionaries, those who have answered a similar call. These, many of these people have left all behind, and it takes such faith, it takes such obedience, it takes a great love for the Lord, and it takes enormous compassion for the lost. But I'm guessing, if I ask the dicks, if they showed up at the airport when they were being sent off to Croatia, well, give me a ticket to... Well, I don't really know, so I'm just going to let God tell me. This is another level of faith, ladies. Abram was being called to something very unique in God's redemptive plan. God is sending him to the land that God will show him to eventually produce the seed that saves. God is specifying one unique aspect in this portion of the narrative, and that's the land. 
But first, but first, Abram has to do something. He has to obey God's call. He has to separate from everything that gives him identity, comfort, and security. He has to turn away from his old life in order to receive the promise of the new life. God is reaching out to Abram. The one who has been separated from God is being called to God. This is a fundamental truth in the heart of every single believer. When God reaches out and saves a sinner, he's calling them to separate from the world and to live for him. Isaiah 59.2 tells us that our iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. But God, but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespass, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. The call of God is not an easy call, but ladies, it is the most important call anyone can ever receive. So it requires forsaking all to follow him, and it also requires a response. Abram responded with obedience. Hebrews eleven eight tells us this, that by faith... Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going. So off Abram goes at age 75 and his wife, Sarai, who is 65. I'm feeling pretty good about myself right about now, along with his nephew, Lot. So Abram has been chosen to be the one through whom God will reveal himself to the world. And this is when God first introduces Abram to his covenant. So what is a covenant, and how is that different than a promise? Anybody wonder that? Well, Hallman's Bible Dictionary says that a covenant is a pact, a treaty, an alliance, or an agreement between two parties of equal or unequal authority. Before the times of signing contracts like we do now, people would cut a covenant with another group or with another person. And we actually still use this phrase sometimes when we say we cut a deal with somebody. But a promise, a promise is both a declaration and a deed. Or in other words, it's the assurance that this declaration will be kept. So these two words have different meanings, but we use them interchangeably because They bring together God's plan of redemption and his pact to keep that plan. God's plan for the redemption of mankind that he proclaimed in Genesis 3 is in place. And nothing will change it, nothing will interrupt it, and nothing can annul it. My husband Recently, this was just perfect illustration, he recently told me about a meeting he was in at work. And his company does business with many different contractors. And in this meeting, there was a chart displayed with the left side consisting of all the different parts that these particular contractors had agreed to make. And then on the right side, after every listed part was a date followed by the acronym R-P-D. Now, my husband, he's been there for a long time, but he was unfamiliar with this particular acronym. So he says, well, what does that mean? To which they replied, oh, that means revised promise date. He looked at them and he said, you know what? That should be BPD, because every single one of those promises has been broken. We live in a world today where promises mean nothing, but God takes promises very seriously. He never revises them, and he never breaks them. There's nothing that can catch him unaware or unable to keep his promise. Nothing can thwart the promises of God. So God will cut 
a covenant with Abram to emphasize this truth. And that brings us to Genesis 15. So open your Bibles, flip over to that. Paul Twist very effectively taught us that God's covenant with Abram consists of, y'all know it, land, seed, and blessing. Good job. The land is what we're looking at right now. In verse 1 of chapter 12, the first thing we notice is that the land is conditional upon Abram's obedience. He had to leave and go where God sent him. Verse 2, he adds this, God is going to make him a great nation. Now, a nation consists of a land mass filled with people. So God is telling Abram that this land is going to constitute a really great nation, and it will be the land of Canaan. But the land of Canaan was occupied. Who was there? Well, if you remember from Genesis 10, verses 15 through 19, the descendants of Ham, remember him? That was Noah's son, Ham, the unrighteous son whom Noah cursed. Um, This was his land. This is where he had settled. Ham's son was Canaan. And they had settled there, and they had continued in their unrighteous ways. In fact, we find out in Genesis 13 that the men of this land, who were the men of Sodom, were wicked and sinning greatly against the Lord. These are the people who are in the land, but they're not worthy of the land. Who owns the land? God does. So who has the authority to give it as a gift? God does. And God gives details of the land in Genesis 13. And verses 14 through 17, he says, Lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are. North and south and east and west, all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. God will get even more specific In chapter 15, verse 18, when he tells Abraham that to his offspring, he will give the land from the river of Egypt, which we know to be the Nile, to the great river, the Euphrates. And I think there's, oh yeah, there is a map behind me. So if you look at the map, you can see at the top, the top of that red line, that's Ur of the Chaldeans. He travels down to Haran. See the place where the arrows all come together? If you track the orangish line all the way down, that's essentially the Euphrates River. The Nile River is so far, it's not even on this map. It's down in Egypt. Um, So this is an enormous swath of land that God is promising. This is a promise that has not yet been completely fulfilled. The closest that anyone has ever gotten to occupying all of this promised land was King Solomon. But it was lost when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon looted and destroyed the temple, carted off the surviving Jews all to Babylon, and all prophesied by by Jeremiah. The Lord made a promise, and we know for certain that God's promises can never be thwarted. I get So excited when I study the history of Israel. I know a lot of you share my enthusiasm for this. Um, God called them to be a chosen nation, beginning with Abraham. And he just, the excitement is just so fun because since that time, there have been so many proofs that God keeps his promise. Abram was told that the land, the occupation of the land would be delayed for 400 years. Remember that? This is their bondage in Egypt that we're going to be studying later on in Exodus. Interestingly enough, the final scattering of the Jews from the land promised by God was after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in AD 70. This is when Rome came in and destroyed the temple, annihilated or took captive the people of Israel, and Israel was no more. So complete was the Roman destruction that they renamed the whole area, and they called it Palestine. This was a name that they took from the Philistines 
because it was meant as an insult to Israel. The Philistines were bitter enemies of Israel. After that, this land was barren and unproductive. The people were scattered and persecuted for over 2,000 years. Mark Twain wrote about this land in 1897 in his book, The Innocents Abroad. And I want you to listen to what Mark Twain said. It's a desolate country whose soil is rich enough, but is given over wholly to weeds, a silent, mournful expanse. A desolation is here that not even imagination can grace with the pomp of life and action. We never saw a human being on the whole route. There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. And even the olive and the cactus, who are fast friends of the worthless soil, had almost deserted the country. Ladies, this describes the barren land that was prophesied in Ezekiel 36. And that same prophecy in Ezekiel said that God would bring Israel back to life, and the people back to the land. So what happened in 1948? The nation of Israel returned to this land. You have to understand, this is profound. This has never happened in human history. For a nation to be conquered, scattered, persecuted for over 2,000 years, then return to the same land with the same name, the same language, and the same people group. But God said it's their land. God said this is an everlasting promise. And even today, even today, we can see this important covenant that God made with Abraham blooming before our very eyes. God's promises are trustworthy and they are true. So in chapter 15... He ratifies, God ratifies this covenant. In 15.1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Okay, so after what things? There was an immediate obedience, as we've seen, but they were followed by some tests. A test is designed to bring out the good in you. A temptation is designed to bring out the bad in you. But God never tempts. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But God desires to bring out and even grow that which is good, the faith which he himself has provided. Real faith, ladies, is a tested faith. So how was Abram's faith tested? Well, chapter 12, verses 10 through 20 says, by famine and by fear. The first test was a severe, severe famine. It wasn't just like a little one. It was a severe famine. And Abram goes off to Egypt. Now, I think it's noteworthy to um, say that God didn't direct him there, but he did what seemed logical, what seemed wise to feed his family. But right on the heels of this first test comes the second. This is fear of man. He asks his beautiful wife, Sarai, to lie and to tell the Egyptian she's his sister so that Pharaoh won't kill him. Well, at this point, Abram is one for three. He's responded in faith, but when it gets tough, his faith is not tough. We don't see any fellowship with God during this time in Egypt, only the reprimand of Pharaoh. God used Pharaoh, a pagan, to send Abram and Sarai and Lot back to the land of promise. Pharaoh was also used to display God's blessing by sending him off with much wealth from Egypt. This is going to be a theme we're going to see again. So back on track, humbled but wiser, Abram returns to where he first built an altar to the Lord. And that's between, well, it's okay if you don't have it, but um, it's, it's between Bethel and Ai, which is roughly between Shechem and Jerusalem. So he calls upon the name of the Lord, and he has changed course, and he's back on track. God offers restoration to those who repent, ladies. 
And Abram is back in fellowship with God. There's a truth here that we can't miss. True faith is a proven faith. James 2.18 says, But some will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Our obedience can never obtain Christ, but our obedience proves our faith in Christ. So some time passes before another test arises, and it has to do with Lot this time. The wealth of the world, ladies, can be very, very alluring. Chapter 13 takes us to that test. They're back in the land, but there's a problem in the land. All of this wealth has caused trouble between the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot. Abram's solution showed that he trusted God's promise of the land, and it showed that Lot was being lured into compromise because he desired a life of wealth and a life of ease. Abram ends up in Hebron by the trees of Mamre, and he builds an altar to the Lord. His consecration led him to courageous acts, but Lot's compromise eh, led him to captivity in chapter 14. We see that there was a war between the kings. They all wanted the lands and the goods, the same land and goods that Lot wanted, but it was also a trade route between for getting down to Egypt. So it was an important piece of land. Lot, who by this time is he's not just an outlier to, to Sodom, he lives there. He's moved right in and he's taken captive. Abram hears about it, and although greatly outnumbered, he sets out to rescue his nephew. God gives Abram victory, and Abram gives God the praise and the glory. The surviving king of Sodom wants to give Abram the spoils of war, but Abram declines because he understands that it was God who gave the victory. This is where we meet. Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the king of Salem and the priest of the Most High God. King of Salem, um, they didn't know exactly where that was, but it was Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So he was the king who came from that area. He was he confirmed God's blessing to Abram in chapter 14, verses 19 and 20. He says this, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered delivered your enemies into your hand. Hebrews 7, 1 and 2 gives us a bit more information about him, about this Melchizedek. He's a bit of a shadowy figure, to us sometimes, but his name means king of righteousness and his title means king of peace. It was unique to be a king and a priest of the God Most High, but Hebrews 7, 14 through 17 tells us that he was to point us to Christ. He was a type of Christ. So God has just given victory and Melchizedek has just blessed Abram, but he's afraid. Why is he fearful? Well, we don't know for certain why he's fearful, but we do know that God saw right into Abram's heart and he knew he was afraid. He had risked his own life to rescue family and neighbors from captivity. He'd given up great wealth, but he still did not have an heir. So Genesis 15, 1 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. In preparation for this lecture, I really camped out here. I love, I love the way that God once again invades Abram's life. He calls him by name. And he knows exactly what's in his heart, and he gives him the words that are needed in that moment that are specific to his calling. 
God says those awesome words to Abram, don't be afraid, I'm your shield. I'm your exceedingly great reward. These words give courage when you're faint-hearted, assurance when you're doubting, and hope to fix your heart and your eyes on. God is Abraham's shield. So what does a shield do? Well, historically, the shield was the most used defensive weapon in the world. It would intercept and deflect specific attacks from the enemy, whether it was a close-range attack like rocks being thrown or long-range like arrows being shot. In battle, it was generally held in the left hand while the sword was held in the right hand, and it was used to the attack to attack the enemy. Interesting. But some historians say that the shield could also form a wall of defense when each soldier soldier should each soldier stood side shoulder to shoulder side by side holding their shield in their left hand together so that they could safely advance it created almost an impenetrable wall the greeks called this a phalanx and it was one of the most lethal troop formations in the ancient world. The spiritual references here are both clear and instructive. We do not stand against the schemes of the devil on our own. God gives us an armor, and he describes that armor in detail in Ephesians 6. But part of that armor is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God held in the right hand, and the shield of faith, Ephesians 6.16 says this about the shield of faith. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. God gives us our faith in Ephesians 2.8. For this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. So don't fear. Whatever it is today that has you tied up in knots, has you fearful, has you doubting, anxious, maybe losing sleep, maybe losing hope, put on your armor. And with God shielding his people of faith, there's nothing to fear. God is our very great reward. Zacharias, remember John the Baptist's father, He made this connection when he prophesied about the seed, the horn of salvation in Luke 1, 71 through 75. The Lord Jesus Christ, the seed promised who would crush the serpent's head. This is our great reward. The desire to be with God, to walk with him and to talk with him with no sin in between us, but in perfect harmony and in pure delight like Adam and Eve had in the garden before the fall, that's the reward. It's God himself, and there is no greater reward. Matthew 5, 12 says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. God reminded Abram that he had made a promise, and he would keep it. The promised land, seed, and the blessing was assured and protected by God himself. Knowing that and believing that is what removes fear. Faith in God's promises is the answer to our fears. Through Abram, we can learn that faith is built up by trusting God when we're fearful, but Abram is still confused. He believes it, but he's confused. He's really old by now, and so is his wife, Sarai. And he just doesn't understand, how is this seed going to come from him? God tells him, look up into the sky, Abram. You're going to have more descendants than you can count, just like the stars. And it's going to come from your own body, not from your servant, but from your own body. And then what does it say? Abram believed, and God declared him righteous by his faith. 
in the promised seed. That's Genesis 15, 6. Underline this in your Bible because it's extremely significant. This is at the core of God's plan of redemption. Righteousness by faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 gives us a clear definition of faith. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But what is righteousness? Our English language tells us that it means uprightness or conformity to the established norm of what is right. But Hebrew and Greek denotes far more than our language tells us. I had to look this up. <laughs> um, The word implies making things as they should be. And when the righteousness of God is applied to a person by faith, it brings that person back to a right relationship, a right position with God. This is what was lost in the garden, but must be established by God in his plan of redemption. As our own pastor, John MacArthur, has said in his book, the body dynamic, he says this, basically, God's gift of salvation brings a believer into a position of righteousness. God imputes the perfect righteousness of his son to the believer and thereby declares him righteous positionally. He goes on to say, know your position, stick to your position. But Abram hasn't always stuck to his position. He's drifted away from fear of famine and from fear of man. But he always believed. Galatians 3, 6 through 9 tells us that just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abram is a friend of God's. Second Chronicles, Isaiah, and James all tell us that. And God gives us assurance of his promise in the form of a covenant to his friend. It's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around um, how vows or covenants were made in those ancient days. But I thought Abner Chow did a really excellent job of explaining it a few weeks ago. Um, Animals would be cut in half so that... Um, They were lined up, and each party could walk between the dead and bloody halves, stating that they, too, would suffer the same fate as those animals if they broke the covenant. So as the sun went down, God put Abram to sleep, and he gave him the information he had asked for. He could be certain that for 400 years, a dark cloud would cover his descendants, that they would be enslaved and oppressed in the land. And when they come out, though, God will judge the nation that had held them, and they'll return to the promised land with great wealth and possessions. He also says this isn't going to happen in Abram's lifetime. He will die at an old age and in peace. God himself appears as a smoking oven and a flaming torch, and he alone passes between these pieces. God alone made the covenant with Abram, and Abram took a nap. This was a covenant that can only be kept by God. The Abrahamic covenant is everlasting. It's unconditional. Its fulfillment is dependent upon God alone. Have you ever noticed that after some great spiritual growth or blessing, you know, that kind of mountaintop experience, Something comes along to undermine our faith. In Sarai's case, it was impatience. She grew impatient and her faith weakened. Chapter 16 deals with a woman who believes in God's promises, but she's tired of waiting. The circumstances are not looking real good. After all, she's now 75 years old and Abram is 85. So she comes up with a plan. Hmm. 
ladies trying to come up with a better plan than God will always leave a wake of trouble. And this is an example of just how wrong the saying is, God helps those who help themselves. Not true. God doesn't want us to try to figure it out on our own. He wants us to trust him, to trust his word, and to cry out to him. Hebrews 4.16 tells us to confidently draw near to the throne of grace in our time of need. But instead, Sarai comes up with a plan. She suggested having a child through her servant, Hagar. She even attempts to spiritualize her plan by saying that it, it was the God who prevented her from having a child. You know, it wasn't as weird as it might sound to us because in those days it was actually a practice um, for a wife who was barren. She could use her maid because she owned her maid. She could use her to bear a child for her. But just because something is acceptable in the culture doesn't make it right in the eyes of God. This was no exception. This was another test for Abram and for Sarai. And they both failed. Like, a, like Adam before him and millions of men after him, he listened to the counsel of his wife instead of the counsel of God. And much trouble followed and still follows to this very day. This trouble began because Sarah was losing faith in God and his promise to them. Not waiting on God had caused so much trouble. Trouble between Abraham and Sarah because Hagar's pregnancy makes Sarai bitter. She becomes really bitter. And it makes Abram really irritated with her because she's so bitter. And then trouble between Sarai and Hagar because Sarai treated her really cruelly. Hagar's pregnancy makes her prideful and arrogant caused trouble for Hagar and Ishmael because Hagar then is mistreated by Sarai and sent out to die in the wilderness that God, had God not rescued them, they would have died. Ishmael will be trouble for all of Israel to this day. The Arab nations still claim lineage directly back to Abraham, but wrongly claim the promises of land, seed, and blessing, because God said those would come only through Isaac. I have a little overhead here. John Street, who's a friend of mine and a pastor of a fellowship group here, he's also the chair of the graduate program of biblical counseling. And he said this, and I think it really applies to Sarai and to all of us. When bitterness towards circumstances is acute, then bitterness towards God is the root and bitterness towards others is the fruit. This certainly was true in Sarai's life and perhaps some of us here today. But God's promises, they can never help, they can never be helped, and they can never be hampered. We can't help ourselves receive the promised blessings, nor can we hamper his promise to condemn sinners. But we trust him and we believe him. And even when our faith drifts, God is gracious to keep his promises. And God was gracious to Hagar, to Ishmael, to Sarai, and to Abraham. So now we're in chapter 17, the circumcision. It's 13 years later. Abraham is now 99 and Sarai is 89. They're all living and prospering in the land, but still no heir for Abram. So just as he did in chapters 12, 13, and 15, God speaks his covenant to Abram. He uses the word covenant 13 times in this one chapter. He calls it my covenant, an everlasting covenant, the covenant between you and me. The Lord appears to Abram again because they have a relationship. And he says, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai which means a great mountain, immovable and certain. He's revealing a new name for himself. And he's also going to give new names to Abram and to Sarai. 
thankfully. I don't have to keep calling them that. He would call them now Abraham, the father of many nations, and she would be called Sarah, princess. God is emphasizing that his covenant is for, is, is for Israel, yes, but it's for all the people of the world, that through this covenant, all the people of the world will be blessed, and Sarah will be the mother from whom kings would come. There are requirements, though, for Abraham to fulfill in order to enjoy this blessing. He has to walk or fellowship before God. In other words, he has to step out in faith. He cannot see behind him, but trust that God is there. Keep moving forward. Be blameless. Be obedient. Stick to your position. Then God establishes his covenant with a sign of circumcision. Um, it's this sign of circumcision demonstrates several elements of this covenant. It shows that there are people of faith who are obedient to God, and they are faithful to God. It sets God's chosen people apart, different from those who surround them. It was an outward sign for all the males who were part of this covenantal community. Even the household servants, those not of Abraham's family, were to be circumcised, pointing to the inclusion of all the nations in God's redemptive plan. There was a cutting away of the foreskin, which was an outward sign of purity, cutting sin from our lives. Faith came before circumcision. Paul emphasizes that this sign was given after Abraham was counted as righteous. Circumcision didn't make anyone righteous. But circumcision is the outward sign of a heart that has been reclaimed by faith. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, that you may live. God proclaims that the promised seed is coming. This long-awaited child of the promise is coming. The seed from which the Savior was spoken of in Genesis 3, is going to come in a year. Sarah is 89 years old, and Abraham is 99. Ladies, we're beginning to grasp the enormity of God's creation and his plan for the redemption of his creation. We've learned about our creator, God, who made us in his image so that we could fellowship with him. We've learned about our own rebellious hearts and just how devastating it is to be separated from God. Now we're learning directly from God exactly how he initiated his plan of redemption by plucking out one sinful pagan man, and choosing him to be the father of a nation from whom his son would come to conquer the very sin that separates us from him. We're going to keep learning from his word just how these promises were carried out by a faithful covenant-keeping God. We also learn that we are a little bit too much like Sarah We can become bitter when we lose patience and we trust in our own plans instead of God's plans. We understand all too well how easy it is to be drawn away like Lot and allow our trust in God to be pushed aside because of our desires for the things of this world. We're encouraged by God's pep talk to Abraham because we too We too need to be shielded from the rocks that this world is full of and getting hurled at us and thrown at us all the time. The lust that God shields us from and the sure defense against the flaming arrows that Satan himself shoots at us. So ladies, put on that armor, 
take up your shield and grab your sword because the promise of land is ours to inhabit in the kingdom of God. The promise of seed is ours through God's son, Jesus Christ. The promise of blessing is ours and always, now and always, because there is no greater blessing than to walk with and to fellowship with the eternal creator, the king and father, our savior and our friend. Chapters 12 through 17 have taught us a lot of great things. These are just some of the highlights. When God calls, you must answer. Today is the day of salvation. When God commands, you must leave all else and follow him. Matthew 16. When God gives you faith, he considers you righteous. Romans 4, 5. When God is your shield and your great reward, there's nothing to fear. Psalm 115. When God tests our faith, our faith is strengthened. Luke 22. When God sets us apart and circumcises our hearts, we love God and we will live with him forever. When God makes a promise, he will do it, Acts 13. And the last question I have for you today is, do you believe this? Because until that day, we, like Abram, we walk by faith and not by sight. Ladies, if you would please stand with me. We're going to do something different today. We're going to, I'm going to pray, and then the worship team is going to come up, and we're going to end today in worshiping the Lord. Heavenly Father, we are so humbled to be able to know you because of the word you have given us. We are so grateful that you have provided redemption for our evil hearts and the sin that separates us from you has been taken care of when you sent your son. We are so grateful. Lord, we believe, we have faith, and we are so grateful that because of our faith, you count us as righteous. Lord, I pray that you will Go before us, help our discussion to be rich. And Lord, I just pray that you will open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the truths you have us to learn today. But most importantly, if you are calling anyone this day, Lord, by your spirit, have them respond. We thank you, we love you, and we worship you. In Christ's name, amen.